You're listening to The LaunchCast, the podcast about leadership, business, life, and growth with me, your host, George Andriopoulos. It's like food for your ears. At this time, I'm going to ask that you fasten your seatbelts. Launch sequence. Launch sequence activated. Launch sequence activated. Five, four, three, two, one. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the LaunchCast. We're talking leadership, business, life, and growth, all of my favorite things in the world. And do you know why we're talking about these things? Because it's my damn show and I'll talk about whatever I want to. Episode 102 entitled, That's What She Said, and this is a fitting title for our guest today. But first, I want to introduce to you our co-host for today, Dana Lopez. She is the Director of Marketing Communications for The Inn, a nonprofit that serves hungry and homeless Long Islanders. Thank you for being with us, Dana. Thank you for having me, George. This is so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you here. And I'm also excited to have our guest for today. Our guest is one of my favorite people on the planet. Let me read her bio. Trisha Brooke is an international award-winning director. She has worked in theater, film, and television for over three decades. In addition to her work in the entertainment industry, she applies her unique expertise to the art of public speaking. Trisha is the executive producer of Speakers Who Dare and the former executive producer of TEDx Lincoln Square in New York City. She has worked on Black Box on ABC, The Affair on Showtime, Rescue Me on Fox, and closely with John Tortoro's Romance and Cigarettes, where she was awarded a Golden Thumb Award from Roger Ebert for her choreography. Trisha also curates the Speaker Salon in New York City, which is an incubator and showcase for emerging speakers, giving speakers the opportunity to get in front of influencers, event organizers, television producers, and TEDx organizers. There is so much more. Mm -hmm. The Big Talk podcast, the Big Talk over dinner TV series. Trisha was awarded top director in 2019 by the International Association of Top Professionals, and also makes documentary films, which we're going to be getting into later. Ladies and gentlemen, Trisha Brooke, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to be here with you, George and Dana. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We are so excited to have you. So when I put together this whole deal, this whole podcast, live show, whatever we want to call it, I wanted to bring leaders to the forefront. I wanted to give a voice, although you already have a tremendous voice, I wanted to give a voice to the leaders out there who could affect change. That's really the real goal of this podcast and this show. You were one of the first people I I thought of. And so thank you so much for being here. It means so much to me. It means the world to me. So let's jump in. Let's do it. (laughs) Trisha, are you a leader? I am absolutely a leader, and I take my role as a leader very seriously. I think showing up in a way that can create a safe space for others is the first part of what leadership means. So what is your exact definition of a leader as, as you see it? I think a leader is someone who is unafraid to step into their role and be ready for criticism 
immediately, knowing that, that what they have to say and who they need to bring along with them is gonna make change in the world. And that's what I show up every day. I wake up in the morning knowing that I'm gonna make the world a better place by my actions and by how I mentor others. That's amazing. Yeah, it's so powerful. And I have a quote here from you from August of 2019 from Media Daily News. You said, words have an amazing power to create hope. Words can also demoralize and destroy. Now, you said this in the context of politics. You were speaking a little bit. I don't necessarily want to go that route today, but the spoken word to you is so important. Is that is is your leadership tied to spoken word or is that just the vehicle that you're most comfortable with in order to lead? It's tied to the spoken word. I am comfortable leading in complete silence. That's big. You, from what I have seen of you in the last year or so that I've known you, silence is a powerful tool that you use. I'll tell a quick story about, so I, I met Trisha because I was a speaker at her inaugural Speakers Who Dare event, which I'm so honored to have been a part of and to be part of that inaugural class. You were tremendous, right, the entire process. And then I walk into tech rehearsal, and we'll get into this a little bit more later, but then I walk into tech rehearsal, and you were so goddamn badass. Like, I, I cannot even, that is where everything changed for me. Like, you were, I had spoken to you so many times, and you were always wonderful and helpful and uplifting, but you were in director mode. And you were in that mode specifically to lift us, and not just to put on a good show for you, but to lift us and to make sure that those 20 messages got out. That was so powerful to me. And and you did it in this sort of, I, I can't even find the words for it, this just epic, like, I don't know, you were just this immovable object there that was like, yeah, we're doing this. And you were supportive, but you were firm, you were, you were fair. It was unbelievable. Thank you. I think what's really important about sharing this story that is important for your listeners to understand is that when you walk into a space or a theater or an event and you don't know what's going to happen, when the leader or the organizer or the director makes it clear that you do not have to worry, then you can just do your job. If you are concerned about, oh, I don't know what I need to be doing, if I make it clear from the moment you walk into what I call my church, my theater, then you can relax and show up fully in your area of expertise, which is the speaker, the actor, the performer. And I remember specifically Mary Gaucher, who is a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter. She walked in and she even brought her own amp. She didn't know what to expect. And I said, Mary, we don't need your amp. We're going to plug you directly into the house. You're, you're, you're the speakers in the house is going to have your music. And she was very nervous. And she was sort of like a, a wild animal pacing back and forth on the stage. And I said, I got you. Hmm. And yeah. she was able to let her guard down around not knowing if I would have her. And that's my job, to make it clear to everybody who walks into that space, you don't have anything to worry about. I'm the one who's going to worry about it for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 so powerful. That that method is something that really had just a huge effect on me. And we and we've spoken about this and again I'll, I'll get into this a little bit more. I want to dive a little bit more into Trisha before everybody knew who Trisha was. You are like this unicorn in a in a pasture, right? Um that that's just like you're there and you're beaming rainbows and where did you come from? That's what I want to know because during this show what we want to do is sort of get to the crux of leadership in order to show people out there that are possibly aspiring leaders, maybe they're leaders that haven't even discovered their leadership, I want them to understand that leadership 
is not, you're not necessarily born as a leader. You're made as a leader. That, that's how I feel. And so hearing these journeys, hearing where you started versus where you are now, it's huge to people. So let's dive into that. You grew up in Arnold, Missouri, right? I sure did. To your parents, Al and Gail, and your sister, Jennifer. And I'm going to give you a fun fact. Did you know that in Arnold, Missouri, in 1993, President Bill Clinton, with several members of his cabinet, held a flood summit at Fox High School? Is that where you went? Fox I went High to School? Fox High School, <laughs> yes. George has done a pretty decent amount of research, oh my goodness. as you can see. And part of growing up in Missouri, because we often had floods, was when we used to do sandbagging. Oh. So we would be called out of class to sandbag so that the cars could get to and from our schools. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so President Clinton was there in 1993 and held a flood summit. And during the summit, Clinton promised the governors of flood-damaged states that his administration would not abandon them on the water receipts. Now, in 2009, President Barack Obama also visited your high school and held a town hall meeting commemorating his 100th day in office specifically at Fox High School in Arnold. So a lot of a lot of big things came from Arnold. The Clearly biggest being after I left. The <laughs> biggest being Trisha Brooke, of course. <laughs> so you learned to dance at Denoyer Dance just outside of Arnold, right? And dancing was your passion. It still is my passion. I will forever be a dancer even though I'm not getting onto the stage that way these days. Yeah. And you attended Stevens College where you were going to become a quote a doctor or a surgeon or a dancer, right? That was what my thought was when I was growing up. I mean, I'm going to either be a brain surgeon or a dancer. And I chose to uh, take the career where I would make the most money as a dancer. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what was it that sparked that decision to, to go into dancing? When I was six or seven, I saw my sister dressed in a pink poodle costume on the stage. She was going to Denoyer Dance School. And I was in the audience thinking, this is interesting. I think I need to do this. And it didn't mean dance in a pink poodle costume. It meant be on stage and entertain lots of people. Right. And that's when I said to my mom, I want to go to dance school next year. And I was seven, and she said, okay, you have to either choose between Bluebirds, which was the precursor to Brownies, which preceded the Girl Scouts. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. You either have to choose Bluebirds or dancing. And I chose dancing. <laughs> and I walked into the Denoyer Dance School and I said, Mrs. Denoyer, I know I'm seven, but and the young girls start with you before they move up to your, your daughter, Miss Sharon. But I'm going to be with Miss Sharon next year, and I'm going to be on point Denoyer, by I the time I'm, I'm nine, and I'm going to dance with Barishnikov. Oh. Well, a leader from very early, apparently. So I, yeah. I knew what I wanted, and I was telling everybody what was going to happen. Right. And of course, I was on point at nine, and cut to working in New York City, dancing with Lucinda Childs and Barishnikov. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get to that. So you attended Stevens College and ultimately you decided to uh, achieve your BFA in, right. was it, you studied dance. I got right. a BFA in dance, but my parents wanted me to go to regular school. A dance career was not something they understood. So I agreed to go to University of Missouri to mm -hmm. get my journalism degree, which oh. is what everybody did mm -hmm. then. And part of the deal was when you go to one of the schools full-time in Columbia, Missouri, you uh -huh. can take classes for free at the other two colleges. Oh. So I was enrolled full-time at MU, took dance classes for free at Stevens, and then they offered me a full scholarship, and I transferred the semester later. Wow. And that was it. You were hooked. Yeah. And yeah. I, I was in a three-year, two-summer program, so accelerated dance program so that I could get my butt to New York City. Yeah. So... 
at Stevens College, and I found this a little bit interesting. I, I read a quote. I was lucky enough to get my education at Stevens College, a liberal arts women's college, where yes was my normal. I never heard no, you can't. I only heard yes, you can. How important was it for the evolution of Trisha Brooke to attend a women's college like that? It was incredibly important to me because I was not distracted by competing with men or boys mm. in the classroom. There were men in the dance department. We had to have partners when we did pas de deux. But I didn't have to worry about the boys being called on in English class or in math class. I didn't have to worry about what I needed to show up with. I showed up as fully myself and was always completely supported. And the camaraderie of the women there, that's where the community building started for me. We were a community of badass women who were gonna make a difference in the world through all of our practices, whether it was theater, dance, equestrian arts. And that is something that I brought into my leadership for sure today. Wow. That's amazing. You know, it's so interesting because now Trish and I have met for the very first time about 15 minutes ago, right? But there's a confidence that you just exuded from the moment that you stepped in the door. And it's just, and you, you talk about going to a women's college, you're questioning about a women's college. It, did, is that, was that a part of, of building that confidence? Because as a woman, sometimes you're, you're like, like George was saying, your quote, you weren't told, no, you can't. And that's sort of a different experience than some of us have had as women coming in. So do you feel that that is something that gave you that confidence or helped to give you that confidence? I think it's extremely relevant. I also think in addition to helping and supporting and nurturing my already existing confidence, it gave me a community of women and showed me that the lifting up of your sisters mm -hmm. is that was my reality that's amazing and that is how i live today there is only a lifting up of my sisters that's incredible because a lot of us are just starting to learn that now as women that we succeed by lifting each other but it looks like you've had it from day one from your sister and 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 in college so that's incredible thank you so in 1991, you moved to New York City to pursue a career in dance. So you get to New York City, and I would love to know, what was the difference between young Missouri Trisha, right? Whether it was young Missouri Trisha growing up or the version of you that first came to New York City versus right now? Well, going back to dance school, Sharon McGuire took me to New York City almost every summer. I came here and went to Broadway Dance Center, studied all, with all of the Broadway dancers. So I was coming here from a very young age every single summer. I knew what to expect. I knew what I wanted. In terms of that, Trisha, the, the girl who moved here in 1991 and who I am now, I am really, really clear on how I can support other people. I was all interested in being a dancer, being on stage, entertaining those people who were in the theater in that moment. And I did that and I loved every second of it. When I realized that my impact was limited to the number of people in the theater or the length of the dance I was performing in, I realized I needed and wanted more, which is why leading people and mentoring people, putting people on big stages or making documentaries about people who are doing important things and putting those films onto the big screen, my impact has a far bigger reach now. 
And that is just what I've learned, that I can have a bigger impact if I step into this version of myself. I loved being on stage, but being behind the scenes and elevating and lifting other people up now is what I'm meant to do. Yeah, and from a from a mentorship perspective, I will tell you that that rubs off on people. When you and I met, um, you know, I, I was I, I'm way deep into my my leadership role in my life, right? But it constantly evolves every single day. And so you and I met when I was just at this point in my speaking career. Uh, and for those of you that that know me, for those of you that don't know me, um, you know, I, I own a management consulting firm and a marketing agency. And for the last few years, I've been doing a lot of public speaking, became a TEDx speaker. And this next evolution was just about um, achieving success, not success in terms of a monetary success, but in che- achieving a position as a public speaker that would allow me to affect change, right? And so my personality is when I, when I, jump into something, I jump in 150% and I will not stop until I, I reach that goal. Yet, I did Speakers Who Dare, love what I did there, you tremendously helped me. Um, and then all of a sudden, I saw your process, and, and again, this is something we'll get into more later, but I saw your process and you inadvertently made me veer off the path of just focusing on my public speaking and I decided to start putting other people on stage because it was so important. So I want you to know that comes through big time, you know, um, in terms of your leadership. It really, you have a way of affecting people in that way. Um, So we will move on now. So you're in the city. Uh, You told us what the difference was between Trisha back then and and Trisha now. Uh, You were a classically trained dancer and you worked with Lucinda Childs, Robert Wilson, Big Dance Theater in New York City, as you mentioned. You toured all over the United States and Europe. what did the first 15 years in New York City feel like in terms of being a professional dancer for a living? And I'm asking that time frame specifically because 15 years after you got here, you had one of these big moments, right? A big break. So what did that first 15 years feel like for you? It felt like a dream come true. I was living my dream. I moved from Missouri with a desire to dance all over the world, and that's what I was doing. I want to also say that it was important for me to also pay my rent and not live like a starving artist. I had no interest in, in, there was nothing romantic about being a starving artist for me. So when I moved here and got my first job waiting tables and it was hard on my body because I had dance class at 10 a.m. every day and wanted to perform, I realized, okay, I want to figure out something else here. So I got a job working at New York Health and Racket, the one on 13th Street, which is where they shot the Seinfeld episode with Elaine, if you'll remember. Yeah, I remember. And realized, oh, I could actually start my own fitness company, hire trainers, make money while I'm touring, and lead those trainers. And that's what I did. So I I had a fitness company. I was touring all over the world, completely in charge of my life did not live in a studio apartment with six other people. And it was incredible. And I remember my parents the first six months in saying, are you ready for us to come and pick you up? (laughs) And I thought, hell no. This is where I live now. This is where I live now. You're welcome to visit. They were just checking, making sure. Yes, (laughs) yes. So the first 15 years was all about me living the dream and honing my skill as an artist, as a performer. That's something that I also took very seriously. I was not some dancer who showed up last minute. I was warmed up. 
I was well rehearsed. I've been on hundreds of stages. And when you are a, classical, a classically trained modern dancer and you are, Lucinda Childs was one of the hardest gigs I ever had. I mean, her, her stuff is petit allegro, re repetitive petit allegro to Philip Glass. So petit allegro is small steps over and over again. And Philip Glass's music is very difficult to count. So my role as an artist, as a dancer, was something I took extremely seriously. And that kind of discipline has absolutely made its way into my leadership style. Sure. So knowing what you know now, knowing where you are now, was it enough back then? Did you feel that you were in your purpose or, or was anything missing at the time? Were you working up to something? I was definitely working up to something, which is why I decided to do a solo show. I wanted to close out my career as a dancer by doing a full-length dance concert where I was doing all of the dances other choreographers had made on me throughout my career and then began choreographing. So I did a full-length dance concert called Dining Alone, and it was just like setting up the Buddhist monks, they make those sand sculptures, those sand paintings where they just make a mandala with mm -hmm. all the sand, and it takes them a really long time to do it, and it's extremely methodical and very meditative. And then when they're done, they just wipe it away. <laughs> and that is how I finished my career as a dancer. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. So speaking of that time frame, so you, you talked about your, your fitness company, Brook Moves, right? Yep. Uh, and so that was sort of your first fo foray into entrepreneurship, which totally widened later on in your career. Uh, you were at New York Health and Racket as a personal trainer. And then something happened. A personal friend of yours and a colleague of yours who was the Pilates instructor for John Turturro had recommended you to him for a musical that he was working on. So in 2006, based on the suggestion to John from your friend, you got a call from John Turturro that eventually led to being hired to choreograph Romance and Cigarettes, a movie adaptation of a musical that he had written. All true. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, did your, were, was your mind completely blown? This was sort of an out-of-body experience because I get the call. He says, I want you to come over to the Mark Morris Dance Studio and we can meet and we can talk about this. No idea what to expect. And as I'm walking down the hall to the studio, Susan Sarandon passes by me. And I thought, that's amazing. So I walk into the room. John's in there. He starts talking to me about the film. He says, there's a bunch of firefighters coming in literally real New York City firefighters. I want you to dance around with them to the Buena Vista Social Club and play Kate Winslet, who is Tula in my movie. She's on fire, and I want you to dance around and make them put you out. And I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. <laughs> Sounds good. What was I going to, what, what did I have to lose? So I'm dancing around the room with these amazing, incredible dudes. Yeah acting like I'm on fire. <laughs> and it was epic. It was so epic. It was incredible. Yeah, so that was sort of done, I guess, to sort of measure your comfort level with this, right? But fun fact that I read, and you could tell me if this is true, as it turns out, these actors, who usually are viewed as these larger-than-life industry influencers or leaders, were terrified of you and having to learn your dance move. Let me read this list of names. James Gandolfini. Susan Sarandon, Kate Winslet, Steve Buscemi, Bobby Cannavale, Mandy Moore, Mary Louise Parker, Christopher Walken, Eddie Izzard, Amy Sedaris on that movie. 
were terrified of you. Not not that all of them were. I don't know how it worked in terms of choreography, but no, they were all terrified. I mean, <laughs> anybody's terrified when you have to learn a dance. That's the thing that most people get scared of, whether it's on a massive movie set like that or a small off-Broadway show. The actors, everybody is scared of the choreographer. So that was my job to make them feel safe. These huge major actors, right? My job to make them feel safe and comfortable, which means I have to be silly, I have to be awkward, I have to show them what the moves are so that they feel comfortable. And that was what I did with all of them. And I'll never forget my late dear friend, Jim Gandolfini, laughing hysterically when we're in the studio working on choreography together or Kate Winslet saying I just I just had my second son I don't know how I can do this and I was like we'll take breaks it's okay <laughs> he made it happen and then Bobby Cannavale who is amazing to work with and yeah. I just made him laugh until he got super comfortable and was able to then be goofy which is what the character required you were literally dancing with the stars at this point like before that was even a thing so that's pretty cool these are not this is a really impressive list of people to work with well I'll never forget Christopher Walken was the most uh, challenging for me <laughs> because he never really spoke and I on set I showed him the moves and really really still watching me just watching show him the moves and then I step off off set and he starts doing the moves I'm like well, it's incredible. So have you ever actually said to somebody that you had Tony Soprano terrified? <laughs> I haven't, actually. You should from now on, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so you have this opportunity, uh, and you obviously make the most of it, as you always do. And as I look at the anthology of your life on paper, it is very obvious that there was a shift post-Romance and Cigarettes where it seems that everything just clicked and you went from a citizen of the world to a world changer. So was there a specific spark moment there that happened? And when I say spark moment, um, you know, I refer a lot to, to my leadership coaching and spark moment is one of the terms that we often use uh, in this class. A spark moment for me in my life was all about those moments where you either just realize that you were meant for more or a, an actual moment where something happens to physically cause that shift. And it's almost like, for me, there were these moments where th there were so many aspects of my life that I was trying to get together in order to become this person I knew I could be. And then these spark moments sort of led to this this moment where it was almost like, and I said this during my last interview with Mike Del Judas, it's like Luke learning the force in Star Wars. It's like Neo understanding the Matrix. You know what I mean? It's like you're dodging bolts and you kind of, you understand everything. And you just kind of get it right away. So what was that shift after this? Because it really seems that 2006 was a, a changing point for you. It was a changing point because I'd never choreographed anything before. And the first thing I ever choreographed was this major motion picture with wow. this incredible group of, of castmates. And what that did for me was, oh, I, I didn't know I was good at this. And then somebody saw my work and I started doing other film and TV choreography. Rescue Me was one of them. And then I, I stepped into, oh, I'm really good at this. I know how to make movement for film. I know how to work on film. And then somebody saw some of my, of my work and asked me to direct a piece of theater. And uh, again, I, I thought, oh, I accidentally became a choreographer. Oh, I accidentally became a director. And then somebody said, you need to direct a, a parody musical of Fifty Shades of Grey because 
you, I'm sure, would have a lot to say about that. And I thought, bring me a writer and I'll direct it. Of course, I couldn't. There was no, I had no patience, so I wrote it myself. So <laughs> the shift was going from I'm an accidental choreographer, I'm an accidental director, I'm accidentally a good writer, to I'm actually a really good choreographer, director, and writer, and now producer, and I'm going to make shit happen. Yeah, mm. yeah, I love that. That's incredibly that. powerful. I had a talk with my wife last night about this a little bit. We were talking about just those people in life that sort of get it and they can make shit happen. My previous business partner in a, a marketing agency that we own together, he and I always used to joke that you could put us in any job and we'll figure it out. And I'm not taking away from the professionals in that job that have had years of training, but we'll do it and we'll, we'll commit ourselves. And so those kind of people are very special. They're very hard to come by. And when they emerge, you know, and, and I talk about this in leadership, there's this sort of responsibility to kind of get out there and do the thing, right? Like to, to make sure that you're spreading, whether it's a message or, or lifting people, right? It, it's a big deal. And it's like, you, it, it's, it's not fair if you keep it to yourself, right? Without question, I think you and I share this belief system that whether you are leading, mentoring, or taking a stage and sharing your message, it is your responsibility. And the one person that you will support change, help, could potentially be life-saving for them. And that is a very big responsibility. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. I wanna get into the speaking world. So you're continuing on your path and you sort of discover that you have the ability, being somebody who's so well-spoken and, and trained, you have the ability to sort of influence others that are speaking. And then there's that leader part of you that knows that you need to put people on stages one way or another. And so one of the ways you did that was by becoming one of the co-organizers and executive producer of TEDx Lincoln Square. So we share a mutual love of the, the TED brand, right? It's so important. It's so important to me it is the truth. And I want to also say Trisha was such a, a mentor to me during the TEDx Farmingdale process where um, I, I organized my own event. And Dana, of course, was our PR for the event. So uh, everybody in this room had a big part in making sure that that was a successful event. And it was, by the way, it was fantastic. Thank you. It was. Thank you so much. I want to talk about one person specifically. One of the biggest accomplishments that a TEDx organizer could ever dream of is to have one of their speakers become featured on the TED website and subsequently maybe even speak at the main on the main TED stage. So uh, one speaker specifically who I, I actually had the pleasure of meeting too at, at one of your salons recently, Sarah Montana. She is the prime example of a meaningful talk. Her talk was called The Real Risk of Forgiveness and Why It's Worth It. This is the description. Forgiveness is tricky. Everyone says you should forgive, but no one will tell you how exactly to do it. And is it always possible, even for something as traumatic as gun violence? In this vulnerable and heartfelt talk, writer Sarah Montana takes us through her journey of forgiving her family's killer. She offers an inside look at what we risk when we choose to forgive and a hopeful glimpse of the freedom that lies on the other side of grief. This was such a well-crafted, not only talk, but her actual performance on stage. And having gone through this with you, just on the speakers who dare side, I didn't actually you know, sit for your salon or, or coaching, but I understand your style and I saw it. I saw 
the body language, I saw the intonations. It was incredible. And Sarah was was phenomenal, but I, I'm sure she owes a debt of gratitude to you for this too, because her video was featured on the TED site. Was there more news with TED or no? Was there? Actually, two more of the speakers I've worked with have recently been upgraded to TED.com, Alexander Solomon and Robin Joy Myers. Yes, it's yes. It's incredible. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That's a big deal to take somebody who had such a tragic story. And of course, Sarah is an incredible human being who told the story and she's sort of figured out this journey, but wow. She came to me with a, a, a written application that was so challenging. I thought to myself, how am I going to put this woman on stage? How is she going to be able to share this information without making us feel bad, making us want to take care of her? And I challenged myself to give her an opportunity to submit a video. And to this day, it's one of the best video submissions I have ever received. She sat in front of her computer, no diva light, just the light from the screen illuminating her beautiful face, talking about this story. Mm -hmm. And I knew in that moment that she was healed, that she was now sharing this to heal others. And that's why she took the stage. Now, she is a trained performer. She also worked with Terry Trespicio. So she came in really, really prepared. My adjustments for her in terms of directing her were very minor. But they really were about giving the audience permission to be with the pain. She wanted to deflect quite often and say something funny so that we wouldn't have to be with the pain. But that wasn't her job. Her job was to deliver the information in a way that could move us and in a way that didn't make us or, or require us to take care of her. However, it also meant allowing us to feel our pain. Not hers, ours. Yeah. And that's what I worked with her on. Yeah, so powerful. The LaunchCast is sponsored today by the Leadership Experience, a coaching masterclass. Intentional, unconventional, thoughtful leadership from keynote speaker, CEO, nonprofit board member, and TEDx executive producer, George Andriopoulos. Hey, that's me. Guys, the music's getting louder and it's epic, which means this is something you shouldn't miss. Registration opens on December 15th and we are beginning January 15th. This music is so loud, that means it's amazing. Join us, theleadershipexp.com for details. You don't wanna miss this. Okay, I wanna move on to the speaker salon. This is, this is really the platform where you take raw talent, raw leaders that are looking to have their voice heard and you give them the tools that you have acquired over the years of your career and help them succeed. And I can really relate to this because for me, this is what my business is about. This is, uh, I sort of combine this mission of getting out there and helping people while still earning a living because that's something we, we still have to do. And I use my business in order to sort of provide people with the tools that I've acquired over the years and teach them about my successes, my mistakes. And so this speaker salon, I know a tremendous amount of people that have attended your salon over and over again by the way, which is a great sign to have repeat customers like that. So talk a little bit about the Speaker Salon, what it's about, and sort of the evolution since you first started it. The Speaker Salon is really an incubator for speakers, a place for them to try new things, to fail, to take big risks. And it came to me when I was thinking about showbiz and how actors go to a school, they, they go to an acting program, and at the end there's a showcase where they perform in front of agents and managers. 
And I thought, oh, I, I need to do that for speakers because so many speakers don't have an opportunity to be seen in front of the people who can book them on stages. And I, I started putting speakers on, literally on a stage every week, gave them an opportunity to walk up there. And that's the thing that accelerated their growth so rapidly is that they had to get on stage. They had to feel the nerves. They had to understand what it was like to speak in front of their colleagues. And then the other magic that happened was observing. When you're in the space and you're not on stage, you are almost learning more than when you are on stage. And these 15 speakers are going through this at the exact same time. So a community is created overnight. The fear, the worry, the success, the confidence, all of that's happening at once. And then they get to perform in front of influencers and they get to be videoed. So they walk away with a reel, they walk away with contacts, and they walk away with a complete transformation. I literally see them walk on stage one way and walk off another. It is one of the most inspiring, fulfilling parts of what I do now. You see how important it is to you and having met so many people that have gone through your salon and seeing those transformations has been incredible. Specifically, I want to mention Sarah Nan and Christina Hallett that were both on Speakers Who Dare. I'm, I'm going to forget some names here too, but... Kyrain, uh, who Kyrain. took your TEDx yes, stage along with Christina. Yes, she did. And that goes to show you the opportunities. So I wanted to attend Trisha's salon showcase you know, soon after speakers who dare just because we got to know each other and I want her, I want to support her work. I was going as a guest, as a, a speakers who dare alum. And then I got licensed by Ted and Trisha asked me if I would go in the capacity of an organizer there because she provides their, her speakers an opportunity to be showcased in front of influencers that could help them sort of move to the next phase of their career. And so a couple of the, the speakers from the speaker salon had applied to TEDx. And although I loved their performances and their talks, you know, when you have 100 plus applications, you sort of have to fit a very specific niche for each speaker. So we have a, a few of these talks covered. We have a few of these and we're looking for, you know, X, Y, Z, right? And so Kaya Rain, who did not apply, I saw her talk and I was blown away. And I said, I have to have her on, on TEDx Farmdale. And I called you and I said, it's okay to reach out. And, and, and the rest is history. She applied and, and she made it and, and she kicked major ass there, as do all your speakers. Yeah, I applaud you on that. And the evolution of that is that the speaker salon is based in New York City. And although I do know people fly in for this specifically, it's not always a reality. And so this sort of evolved into also doing the Big Talk Academy, right? Yeah, that is the most... Um, exciting new part of what I'm offering speakers. I didn't know if a virtual certification program would work. I didn't know if a virtual showcase would be valuable to the speakers. And the first nine speakers have just gone through the 12-week program. They're all certified through the Big Talk Academy. And this, the virtual showcase happened last week. And what that means is everybody presents eight minutes of material through Zoom Mm -hmm. And then I give feedback. And then if there's enough time, they each give each other feedback. And this is very similar to the process at the speaker salon. It's in time, real live direction and yeah. feedback. And these speakers blew my mind. They showed up 
fully prepared to be as vulnerable as possible. And unlike the salon where they're memorized and they're off book and they're standing on a stage, this is where they're sitting in front of their computer, but they're talking directly to the lens and they're sharing their story. And it was incredible. Yeah. They took it as seriously as if they were standing on a stage. And that was so in- inspiring to me because now I know it works. Mm. You, can, you can perform at a virtual showcase and still have the same kind of benefits as if you were standing on stage. Do you find that a lot of the speakers, because I know that part of this that you do is really based on your mentorship of, of um, people that really want to tell their story. Do you find that they have sort of the, almost like an embryo of a story that you sort of, that you sort of help them to grow into a full-size child baby? I am always <laughs> the doula. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I like that's, that you went with that metaphor. One. Thank you. The speaking doula, <laughs> yes. Trisha Brooke. I, yeah, because I imagine that people have a story to tell, but they don't necessarily know how to deliver it, or they don't know what pieces. And I know, George, you did this too in terms of mentoring your speakers. So how often do they have just a piece of it that you then have to grow into something much bigger? Almost always. And recently I, I produced a, a master class where I was supporting speakers in terms of how to apply to TEDx. It's a very specific art form. That language is very specific. Yes, it is. And one of the women in the, in the master class was new to me. I didn't know her. She came because of someone who was in the salon. And through the process of that day, it's a day from 10 to 4, she shared with me that her first husband, the father of her first child, kidnapped her Whoa. and locked her up for six months. She shared this with me and said, I've never shared this with anybody. Oh my goodness. And I asked her if she'd be willing to stand up in front of the group and talk about this. Wow. And it was one of the most profound things I've ever experienced because I know that this woman is going to save lives when she tells this story. I know that this woman is going to give other people the courage to get out of situations that are dangerous or unhealthy. And the fact that she trusted me in this room full of community members, of co-speakers with this information, that is the kind of work I do. That's the kind of mentorship and leadership that I know I am meant to be doing. And she is going to free herself because she's going to share this story. And I, I know without a doubt that she is going to step into her power because yeah. of it. Yeah, wow. That's powerful. Dana, I want to ask you, so when you and I had first started speaking about TEDx Farmingdale, I had you in mind to, to give us a hand with PR, and you were possibly interested in speaking. That is true. Yeah, and so <laughs> I would love to hear now, because maybe this could be sort of a little experiment for us, I would love to hear now what your thought process was in choosing at the time to not go for it, because ultimately you decided not to apply, and you wanted to help us out, rather, on PR, which we so appreciated. What was the thought process? What What was the reason that you chose not to get out there and not only speak your truth, but get on that important stage? Well, that's, I didn't expect you to ask that question, but I'm glad you did because the question that I asked, just asked Trisha is kind of the answer to yours. Um, I have done some public speaking in the past. It's mostly when I do speak, and I speak on behalf of the inn. I've spoken for a company that no longer exists called Making It Count, where I used to go out into um, high schools and speak to students about your career. I 
love getting up and telling a story. I have an acting background. I went to performing arts high school, LaGuardia. Um, I love speaking in front of an audience, which people don't say because I know that there's a thing that's like the one thing that people fear more than death is public speaking. I'm actually the opposite. I love it, and I love to get up on stage and speak. My issue was, and the reason why I didn't kind of take that next step is because I wasn't sure if my story was compelling enough. So, you know, what I found, and one of the questions that I had for Tricia was, um, I find that many leaders are made leaders because they've experienced some kind of adversity in their life, whatever it is. They've gone up against an obstacle. They've had a a traumatic experience, like some of the speakers that you've been talking about today. Um, those stories, they're raw, they're powerful, they're compelling. Sometimes you have somebody that just kind of goes about life, and every once in a while there's a trip up or a little obstacle. Is that compelling enough that people would be interested in hearing it? So I I won't get into my personal story. I did mention that I had lost my job, which is why I got to speaking in the first place. It's part of it. I think it was fear. This is the short answer. Fear is the short answer. And I feel that there's lots of people out there that probably have a story that can change lives or that can make a difference or that somebody would listen to and say, oh, my goodness, you know, I I relate to that. But it's a matter of meeting someone like yourself that would be able to pull that out of them and say, okay, this is something that could be interesting if you tell it in a certain way. And your point of view is unlike any other. What makes your story unique is that you're sharing it through your lens. And I want everybody listening to be super clear that you don't have to have led some traumatic life or some horrible existence in order to take a stage. You can have a really incredible life and still take a stage and reach the one person that you're meant to reach. Mm. I agree 100%. I'll add to that and say that, again, it doesn't, like Trisha said, it doesn't have to be a traumatic story, but there are these moments that are so important in your life. And and these moments are really the, the stopping points where you can start and tell a story, right? And so it's funny you say that because one of our speakers at TEDx Farmingdale, Jen DeHaze, one of my favorite people on the planet, she's actually my son's and was my daughter's until she went to middle school, uh, assistant principal, right? right? I remember her. And uh, she gave a talk about truth and the importance of truth. And her goal in this talk was to speak to truth in her personal life, in her professional life, because it was very important for her to speak about truth in education. And so when when she and I first started the conversation, she was one of my invited speakers. Mm-hmm. I invited about four or five speakers and then the rest were all applications. Before we even had a concept, because I knew that she had something important to say. And so she said to me, my husband and I watched all of your videos, George, online, just speakers who dare she had seen and all this. And you know, we love all of your stuff, but you know, you talk about this traumatic event in your life that happened and that was sort of the spark for everything. I don't really have that traumatic event. And I go, I can give a talk right now about anything in my life, you know, because I've opened my mind to sort of learning that these stories exist everywhere. It doesn't have to be about the time in my life when I was a shithead and I turned things around because I met a young girl with cancer and it changed my whole life, right? right. I could talk about... I. We were at a, a party, I don't even know what it was, a speaker salon party or whatever, where I was telling Trisha an idea I had about doing a talk about how we view each other and, and about my problem with my weight my whole life and how I feel about it and yada yada. And it was a great idea for a talk, but it didn't come from any major trauma. And so being able to recognize those moments 
and speak to those moments and share that, you're going to reach somebody. That's And that's so important to do. And not only is it important to do, but it's important to experience telling that story in so many different ways. The people that dealt with me for TEDx, I sent them Trisha's way for Speakers Who Dare, you know, the ones that really needed to tell more stories because I said, hey, I think you've learned something. Now, I I took, you know, 80% of the Speakers Who Dare book to build TEDx Farmingdale in terms of building the community with the speakers and all that because that was so important to me. But I added my own nuances in terms of speaking, what I think is important. You know, there's a certain formula to some TEDx talks, and if you kind of follow that formula, it gives you a through line in your talk, which is important. But there are nuances that I cover that maybe Trisha doesn't cover and then vice versa. So I said to them, this isn't about just getting on another stage. This is now, you work with me, go work with Trisha because she will take you now and elevate you tenfold from what, and then after Trisha, go work with somebody else. Mm. As long as you're working with professionals I that think understand. Some, something you're saying that is so important as well, if I can unpack it a little bit, is that when you are at the helm, it is not about you. Hmm. When you are the TEDx organizer or the conference organizer or the director of a show, it is not about you. It is about the show. It is about the speakers. And if your ego steps in and you become the most important part of the formula, that is going to set everyone up to fail and to not be a part of a community. And that's what you did so beautifully with TEDx Farmingdale is that you made it about the speakers from the moment you announced you got your license. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. And I think that's something that I, I want to encourage people who have this platform is that it cannot be about you. It must be about the event, the show, and the people that you are supporting. Mm-hmm. And then the people that you are serving, everyone in the audience, everyone who's going to watch these videos, that needs right. to be your focus when you are leading from any platform. Well, that's really powerful because I think that since we've been sitting here talking, the sort of common thread of this whole interview is that this leadership that we're speaking of, you've said it a million times in the last you know, 45 minutes that we've been sitting here, your being a leader has more to do with kind of being on the sidelines and lifting people up in whatever way, shape, or form that may be, whether it's speakers or dancers or actors. It hasn't been about you. Your leadership hasn't necessarily been about you, and that's what's made you a success, and that's what's really made you a strong leader. And I think that's the most incredible like message from this whole thing that I've gotten by sitting here. I hope that everybody else does too. Thank yeah. you. And the modeling, that's where the silence comes in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Leadership, and I'm glad you brought that up, Dana. Leadership is so unconventional. Every leadership story is different. You know, when you look at these talks, TED Talks, whatever kind of talks that you're you're looking at online in order to get inspired or motivated, that's my happy place. I found in my 40th year now, I found that being in my creative place is one of my happiest places. And it's harder as you get older to sort of get to that place. And so these talks are what inspire me. You know, when it's time for me to write, or to, to do something creative like this, I need to lock myself in my office by myself, watch a few of my favorite talks, um, and, and just sort of get inspired by other people's inspiration. And it's all about storytelling, you know, and, and dealing with the right people in order to tell those stories is, is 
of paramount importance. I know Trisha always impresses that on everybody. Know what you're worth as a speaker. So I want to move on. So we, we've talked about Speakers Who Dare, the speakers. Well, Speakers Who Dare, we, we sort of touched on. So everything evolved. TEDx Lincoln Square evolved eventually into Speakers Who Dare. You sort of outgrew the mission of, not the mission necessarily, but the confines of TEDx, which I completely understand. And you're creative, right? You're a director, you're a producer. Hey, time to grow bigger. I wanted to have more creative control over my event and therefore decided to leave as executive producer of TEDx Lincoln Square. I continue to support other TEDx organizers and events and will continue. We're going to keep collaborating on TEDx Farmingdale for sure, George. Yes, we will. And I think the TED platform is fantastic. I, however, needed more creative control when it came to how I would produce my event. I want to put people on my stages who are saying what we are thinking. And that required me to create my own event and uh, bring my co-producer, Jamie Broderick, in. Of course, she's an integral participant in the role of our production. And I'm really excited about the Speakers Who Dare platform because I believe that you are a speaker who dares whether you're on a stage or not. When you are saying what you believe in, when you are speaking your truth, when you're standing up for what you believe, that makes you a speaker who dares. So that is my mission is to teach people that they are a speaker who dares when they speak out. Yeah, and and the event itself was totally mind-blowing, not only to witness my wife, who is not, or I should say was not a huge, I don't want to use the word fan, but she's not the type of person that would sit and watch 20 talks. And she was completely engaged that day. She went to both sessions, was completely engaged, couldn't stop talking about some of these talks afterwards. As a speaker, as a part of it, the community that you built was everything. And that was the number one lesson I took into TEDx Farmingdale. The community amongst the speakers, you know, we went in giving 20 separate talks. I've said this countless times. We went in to give 20 separate talks. And for me personally, you know, as a, a public speaker that's that's keynoted a lot of um, bigger events and, and done TEDx's, I have to get in my zone. And we, we all have our process. And, and when I go somewhere to, to speak, whether I'm keynoting or I'm giving a session, I need to sort of get in my box and just be with my own thoughts and, you know, do my thing, calm myself. And this was different, this one. This was like we needed each other for this one. You know, I, I, I felt the vibe in the in the room in the week leading up to it because we had this private Facebook community. And so feelings started coming out. People were really vulnerable and, and talking about their vulnerability. And we helped each other with that. And, and not only am I a father, but I'm also a, a coach in many ways, a sports coach for my kids and, and a, a leadership coach here. And so, you know, kicking into realizing that I sort of at a certain point had to use my experience to go into like dad mode or, or leadership yes. mode and sort of be that person that somebody could lean on. That was so helpful to my talk because I love and I love that I happened to be the last one speaking and, and we were all in the balcony watching each other. And I remember a specific moment where Cordon goes up on stage and he took a, he took a, a big breath, right, before he started. And it was a long breath. And I go, oh, man, I hope, he, I hope he's not nervous. And so he looks right up and I give him one of these and he jumps right into And then I spit in his face, right? <laughs> um, and, and, and it was a great moment for me. And we did that for everybody. And it was so cool to then go up 
where the entire the other 19 speakers were up in that balcony and cheering for me and whatever and and we brought the house down all of us that day it was incredible. it was it was incredible i it was i, I pure loved magic. yeah i loved every bit of that day you did a, a fantastic job you and jamie great team so we evolve as we keep doing as as you and i um both ha- have spoken about in terms of our careers i love when you're a creative and the, the entrepreneurship side of things can grow into really fun, cool, creative stuff. And so you have become, to me, an outstanding documentarian. You've done a few short documentaries. I'm going to list them here just enough. This Dinner is Full and the two most recent ones, Right Livelihood, A Journey to Here, and You're Gorgeous, I Love Your Shirt, and Inside Look at Bullying and Mental Health. I want to play for a minute, if I can, I want to play the trailer for Your Gorgeous, I Love Your Shirt so people can get uh, an idea of it. I'm going to preface it by saying this is Tanya Harris, who was my fellow speaker at Speakers Who Dare, and her daughter, Lindsay, right? Lindsay, yeah. Her daughter, Lindsay. And, and check this out. Super powerful. Well, you're letting so, it all hang out yeah. today. Okay. <laughs> Just when she was little, I knew there was something different. I noticed she was a little more moody but she's a teenage girl. So it's like, where's, where's moody and depression? Where is that line? Mental health is a topic I never thought I would even be speaking about. I knew nothing about it. I didn't know anybody who had any problems that I knew of. But I'm realizing now, if we would all just kind of share our stories, the good and the bad, we'll realize that everybody's going through something. I was lucky enough to have gone to a screening and Q&A that you had for both uh, Right Livelihood and Your Gorgeous I Love Your Shirt. And wow, so awesome. I mean, I, the work you were doing is, is incredible. Talk about why. Like, why. Why this? Why when you know that you could, you have the chops and the skill to go out there and produce something that's super entertaining, that'll appeal to the masses, Yet you choose to do something that fucking matters. Why? Because we have one chance to do something that matters. And I'm going to take my chance. I want to show up every day having impact that will help people, serve people, make the world a better place, give people an opportunity to realize they're not alone in this world. It's complicated. It's hard. Life is not easy. But if they can watch somebody else having an experience and sharing what it's like to come out on the other side and pass that on, pass that forward, then my job is done. And that's why I do this. I want to put people who have important messages onto the big screen and the big stage because the ripple effect goes way beyond what I can even see. And we do it together. Yeah, I I recently spoke about this. This may have even been part of my opening remarks at TEDx Farmingdale. And I and I spoke about this in terms of being a public speaker and why we do this. But really it's the same definition for a leader for me. Why do I do this? I was asked so many times and I and I would ask you the same question because you're nonstop. You're you're even more relentless than I am in terms of just getting out there and doing whatever the fuck you want to do in terms of projects. <laughs> like what is she doing now? Oh a fitness company, uh, oh, documentaries, a coaching academy. Why do you do it is, is the question. And the answer is because somebody has to do it. 
because I am choosing to stand up and say, I'll do it. And I hope that I inspire others to then stand up and say, I'll do it too, or I'll follow you, right? That's, that's the whole reason for this. And that's what this leadership is about. So I commend you on these. These docs are so, so good. I hope to one day get the opportunity to work on one with you because this is, for me, such cool stuff and so inspiring. Let's we'll make keep, it happen. We'll keep that let's, conversation going. Let's make going. it happen, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to sort of now bring it back to something that you know a little bit about this from my Not Just For Profit talk. Years ago, I decided to write my mission statement. And this mission statement is something that I was inspired by the movie Jerry Maguire. He suddenly grew a conscience overnight. And he got up and started to write his mission statement entitled, The Things We Think and Do Not Say. And so three years ago, by the way, to the day, because I just had this Facebook memory yesterday um, that popped up, at one in the morning in this very office right here, I was inspired to start writing that mission statement. And so that mission statement, I wrote, it wasn't long, it was about 12 pages. I wrote the first 10 pages that night and it took me two years to write, two and a half years to write the final two pages because the story wasn't done yet. And so it culminated in exactly the way I wanted it to culminate in terms of what I'm about. Right. And I didn't know fully yet at the time. And so I ask you, what is your mission statement? My mission statement is to create an army of heart-centered, authentic, dignified communicators who understand how to make a difference in the world by how they show up, how they speak, and how they communicate on this planet. And you're doing it. You're doing it big time. Um, your influence on me, and I mentioned this, but uh, as a friend, as a facilitator, as a mentor, as an inspiration, as another member of my circle has been tremendous. You know, a lot of the stuff that's happening right now has come from my, my relationship with you. TEDx Farmingdale, although that was something that I had been thinking about for a couple of years, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have been ready to pull the trigger yet. This podcast, you know, uh, seeing the kind of stuff you do, meeting some of the colleagues that I've met through Speakers Who Dare. Cordon was a huge influence on this podcast, you know, because of the work he does with Joy Revolution. Surrounding yourself with like-minded leaders is just as important as being a leader. Absolutely. We elevate each other. When yeah. we come together, we're collectively making everything better and bigger for everyone else. Yeah. Trisha, can you actually pinpoint specific spark moments in your life that changed the game for you? When I did not get into the Paul Taylor Dance Company, I thought my life was over. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me because I had to think differently. I had to figure out what was next. Yeah. Yeah. The moment Petra Kolber asked me to direct her TEDx Syracuse because I thought, that'll be fun. It's like a one-woman show. I'll dramaturg the script. I'll give you choreography. I'll work with you on directing. And then it was over, and she said, you should do this. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. The moment I received word that my two films qualified to apply to the Academy Awards and actually Right Livelihood and Your Gorgeous are floating around the Academy right now. Yeah, that was Thank you. That was kind of epic. And then I think I would also have to say meeting my husband was a big spark because I never wanted to be married. I had great friends. I had my own money. 
I didn't meet a dude. (laughs) (laughs) So that was really interesting because I met a person who was my equal. I met a person who was my teammate. I met a person who made me laugh and who I knew would have my back, my front, and my sides. Yeah. You said something just now that I really just, I'm holding on to it for a minute in terms of your first spark moment and not making it into this uh, dance company. How do you feel... I know that you've seen also a lot of people that have had these moments that are of, you know, like I said earlier, of adversity where they kind of feel like it's over. You know, it's it's done. It's a failure. It can't get any worse than this. They haven't gone, they haven't been at the other side yet to turn back and say, oh, that's what that was for. It made me think differently. What's your, what's your message for those people that are in it that are not at the other side yet? You have to keep the story moving. Yeah. You, you have to keep the story moving always. When I was slated to direct the Johnny Carson musical for Broadway, it was a big deal. A, it was a musical that was produced by a lot of men. I was a female director. I was a first-time Broadway director. And when that project fell apart, I gave myself a day to feel badly. <laughs> and then I had to keep the story moving. And give yourself permission to experience the disappointment, mm. but do not let the disappointment prevent you from doing what you need to do right don't live in it never i love that yeah um wow i love all this i love all of this this is so incredible this is exactly what i wanted this to be you have to edit this down because that's gonna be hard just no just a a tad and and this is a prime example of 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 something i want to get into now because i want to start talking about balance a little bit balancing in terms of leadership I think is that final step to mastering leadership. When you introduce the concept of balance or something I call the balance phenomenon, right? Um, it's so important. I personally, when I, when I made my transformation from this person um, that was a horrible human being in my eyes, to, to I can't even imagine that, George. No, you you you, you should. Like a little hard on yourself. <laughs> no, but you know we have to be a little introspective when as we grow, right? And we have to evolve. And so I made a conscious effort to evolve. As I evolved into this person, I'm still evolving every day, and I will always be evolving. I sort of compartmentalized these aspects of my leadership. I wanted to make sure that you know I was a. a a solid leader as a father and as a partner and now a husband again and as a business owner and as a community leader all these different areas and so I was very used to in my life these masks that you put on I have to be this person I have to be this person and then the balance phenomenon for me came into play where I realized that they're all the same person and it's, it's interesting because Mark Cordone has talked about this a little bit in the, the Joy Revolution stuff that he does, you know, where he talks about uh, masks and, and how, and he recently did a TED Talk on this about how he had his alter ego, Manila Ice, and he yeah. realized mm-hmm. that it was always Mark, right? Mm-hmm. And so when that balance phenomenon came into play and I realized how important it was to make sure that I combined all these people and that that was the first time I looked in the mirror and said, hey, that's, that's George. Like that's actually George, and it was it took about thirty five years to get there, and it's always a balancing act. Being the, the for me, being a father and the community leader and the business owner and and doing everything I do. I mean, even today, I got a text in the morning that my son was sick. I'm a, I'm a divorced dad, remarried with two beautiful kids, and got a text that my son was sick, and I'm like, oh my god, Trisha's coming in today, and no problem, I got it. I pick him up, I bring him home. 
call my mom. You got to watch Johnny for two hours, blah, blah, blah. And then it turns out he started feeling better and I took him to school. And I had to make his lunch and, <laughs> and I had to get here. And that's a balance. Parenting. Right? Yeah. It's a, it's a balance <laughs> sort of getting, getting to that place. So what I'm getting at for you is I, I want to know for you, Trisha, what does balance mean to you? Balance means being able to accomplish everything that I need to in order to show up fully for whoever I'm working with or in the room with. Whether it's my husband, whether it's my family, whether it's my friends or my mentees or my speakers. If I am taking care of myself, do my workout, my meditation, drinking enough water, that is the only way I can show up fully. So it starts with me. The, the priority is making sure that I am at the top of my performance so that I can show up and, and do everything I need to, and that's the ultimate balance. Because I do a lot of things, whether it's making movies, producing shows, being a friend, being a, a partner to my husband. I do all those things with 110%, and balance means starting with me so that I can serve fully. Do you, do you compartmentalize your life? Do you include, and, and I don't mean this in a way where, where you're crossing boundaries, but do you include your personal life and your professional life and vice versa? Are they a part of each other? Who I am in both of those worlds is exactly the same. Do I post on social media about my personal life? Not really. That's something that I keep to my to myself. But who I am in my personal life and in my professional life is exactly the same. Yeah, I uh, you know it's funny you you mentioned that because we we had discussed um, the type of interview that I wanted to do here, and it was so important to me in order to get to the crux of leadership and have people understand what these journeys are about to find out things that I had never heard before. And I found out some, and I want to give a shout out to Phil Silverstone, who you, you turned me on to the interview you did with him, which was probably the most in-depth interview that you had done up till now, yes. Phil. <laughs> I'll take that, Phil. <laughs> challenge, challenge thrown out there, Phil. Oh, you can have each other on your shows. <laughs> yes. Um, but it was, it was important to me to find out things about you that I had never heard before. And so I realized that Romance and cigarettes was the first thing I'd ever heard about you, and and in doing my research, you're pretty good at keeping. Like that's all I could find until I found out the name of your hometown, and I and it was Arnold, Missouri, and I'm like, okay, maybe I can use it. And then I started finding out some more stuff. I'm like, all right, this is great. <laughs> and so you know, we we talk about that balance in your life, and you are the the consummate professional. Although I do believe that you are the same person, you know, in both aspects of your life. But speaking of which, uh, and, and this to me is an interesting fact, and I think I have the timing right here. Your husband, Joe Ricci, director, writer, actor, wrote In the Key of Love for Hallmark. Yes. The dude makes movies. First time I'd seen Joe not in person was I was watching your TEDx Lincoln Square videos, and I saw him perform an Alanis Morissette song with Mia Gentile. Yeah, right? and make him sing in all my shows <laughs> because he's epic. I mean, he's got the most incredible voice. Joe is a great guy, and I was doing a lot of research on him because one of the things I've discovered in, in recent years is that I personally couldn't have become the leader that I have become without my partner in life, my wife, Colleen. And so she is such a complement to, to who I am and, and the team that we have formed. And so I also 
I, I, and I, again, I think the timing is right. We talked about 2006 being that spark moment. When did you guys get together? 2006, we met. Look at and that. And married 2009. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and isn't it interesting that stuff starts coming together? And I'm not, I, I don't want to give credit to the relationship, but sometimes that partnership, not the relationship itself, the partnership can really complete who we are. And we start seeing the world through someone else's eyes and a lot of things begin to open up to us. And that's really what's so important as well. Yeah, super important. And I think that Joe was such a great compliment to you. I found out some, I read some stuff about him. I'm gonna give you this quote, which is on his website. He said, I believe in the magic that happens when talented, open people get into the room and influence each other. It is very obvious that you are like-minded and form an excellent team. We are a really fantastic team because we're, in, he's incredibly supportive, we're incredibly supportive of one another, and we're also completely honest. Yeah. I will never forget the day he said, honey, that wasn't your best work. And I appreciated that so much. Yeah. You so need that. Much. Yeah, yeah. You need you that. definitely do. For, do you know why my wife, and, and, <laughs> and you both know her a little bit, but she's a great compliment to me because she doesn't just take my, my bullshit. And it's not like I'm feeding it all day long, but when it's there, she calls me out on it. Uh, great example is, and we're talking about balance here, is that uh, last year, the fall time is usually a busy time for me. Right, September, October, the kids go back to school. I have a lot of involvement with their school, and business picks up for me anyway in, in the fall time. And so from September through beginning of November, I'm usually out every single night at meetings or whatever. Um, and so last October, I had booked a little speaking tour. You know, I went to a few cities and wound up. My final place was in, in Florida somewhere, Fort Lauderdale or, or Orlando. And I was going to be away for a few days, and I'm out every night. And I come home, and she goes, hey, babe, can I talk to you for a second? I go, shit. <laughs> and she said to me, um, you know how you're always speaking about work-life balance and how important it is? I go, yeah. And she goes, you're not doing a very good job of it right now. Go. And I go, message received. <laughs> okay. I moved some things around. I canceled some commitments. I asked her if she wanted to come with me on my speaking tour. And we got through it, and that's what it's about. It's yeah, about that it communication. Communication, right? uh, yeah. somebody shining a light on something you may not be seeing. Right. And you mentioned already, Tricia, when you, when you talked about your husband earlier, that you weren't even looking for him in the first place. So you knew that in order to bring somebody into the fold of your life, it was just to enhance your life. It wasn't to complete your life. Like, okay, you, you complete me. That was uh, also Jerry, Jerry Maguire. Yeah. Since we're talking about Jerry Maguire. But... Um, and that's wonderful, but at the same time, it didn't sound like that's what you needed, and that's probably what makes your relationship, your relationship, my relationship, I'm also married, um, that's what makes those relationships work, that you're not out looking for them. They come to you at the right time with the right person and with the right honesty and, and, and people really getting down and telling you what you really need to know. Truth, back to truth. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because I had a, I have some insight. I had a slight peek into Trisha's uh, head during that time uh, from something I read. And she mentioned before that she didn't really want to be married, right? So you said that you chose to stay unmarried before you, you, were, before you met Joe. Uh, and that's different than being single. And when you and Joe were dating, you were in a committed relationship and eventually you realized that you had found your teammate in life and for your own reasons decided to get married, right? And after you tied the knot, you expected a feeling of accomplishment, but instead you had the following thoughts running through, through your head. Who the fuck was I now? How was I supposed to be in the world? 
did my sexuality cease to exist? Being someone's wife felt like I was no longer Trisha. I was someone's wife. Did he own me? I didn't want to work for anyone, so why would I want to be in a company of Mr. and Mrs.? <laughs> wow, right? I said that. <laughs> you said that. And you actually didn't call Joe your husband for a solid a year, year, right? I, yes, that's true. Yeah. It's tough for a leader to let people in sometimes and, and to, to change um, their environment, I think. What was really interesting about that experience was not that I thought I'd made a mistake. I sobbed uncontrollably for three days after I got married. I did not <laughs> think I made a mistake. And I, I took uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Committed, on my honey- honeymoon with me, which is all about not getting married. I'm sitting next to my new husband reading a book about not getting married. <laughs> <laughs> Good guy. He must have loved yeah, that. He was, this is the perfect <laughs> example of who my husband is. What happened for me is I didn't know I needed to mourn the loss of my single self in yeah. order to become a new person. It wasn't about being a wife. It wasn't about a Mr. or Mrs. It literally was that I didn't know who to be in the world because I had not mourned the loss of being single. And I went through that process. And if and when I ever take a big stage, that is something I want to speak about. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's so big. And it's funny how, and we, we were coming back to this, but we talked about it before, that balance in your life that sort of happened as a result of this new team that you formed and, and how, how big it was. And again, I don't know if this is what led to becoming the Trisha of today. I'm sure it was a huge part of it too. But again, that seeing that shift for you in 2006 when things just started happening, I can't imagine that it wasn't a part of it, right? It was absolutely a part of it. But one other piece of that is I made a decision. I'm literally, I started saying out loud, I'm going to make the world a better place. Yeah. That's a pretty bold statement. And I think I was afraid to say it out loud because what are people going to think? And this is a perfect example of why your story is important no matter what you think yeah. is important. I truly know I'm making the world a better place. And by saying it out loud, the universe heard me, and now I'm doing that. Yeah, yeah, huge. Time for the big three, guys. All right, the big three is your top three. I'm going to call out some things, and you are going to give me your top three items for each bullet that I list. Ready? I'm ready. Top three public speaking talks that you've heard, not by somebody that you coached. Miriam Sidibe, The Power of Hand Washing. What's the final talk, the, the, the man who gave his final speech knowing he was dying? What's that man's name? I love his talk. Oh. Oh. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I, I know what um, you're talking about, yeah. The final lecture, uh-huh. I believe it's called. The final lecture, that's powerful. Jo- Joe and I read that um, and sobbed uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. And Michelle Obama's speech. Um, I knew that would be in there. At the Barclays? At the Barclays, yeah. yeah. No, actually not that. She, she didn't really speak at the – she was – it was a fireside there. But when she spoke um, in – I think she was speaking on behalf of Hillary Clinton. That's one of the speeches I, I will never forget. Yeah. And the power of women. Yeah. Fun fact, after you watched Michelle Obama at the Barclays Center, you were coming home on the subway and heard some boys who were – speaking loudly on purpose and being very derogatory towards a girl that they went to school with, and you got up and stood up. I did. Yeah. I was a speaker who dared. Man, (laughs) you never stop, do you? You're like a superhero. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> when they, I leave, when I leave, they heard you. Oh, I spoke directly to them and I said, "You are dis, um, you are being disrespectful to the woman you're talking about and to me and every woman on this train. Mm. You need to stop right now." You made the MTA proud. <laughs> <laughs> Big three, top three leaders at this very moment. Sarah Nannan. Ooh. I have five. <laughs> Sarah Nannan, Lindsay Ellison, Dr. Christina Hallett. Kate McKinnon and Susan Eckstein. Wow. I right now in this very moment agree with you. Yeah. Top three spark moments in your life. The moment I knew I was in love with my husband. The moment I knew I was making the world a better place. And the moment I stepped into my power fully. Top three dance performances of yours. Vienna Opera House, dancing Lucinda Childs solo from 1973. That was epic. Sweet Buns, a piece that I choreographed for a burlesque show that I directed, where I ate a hamburger. Joe to this day says, honey, that's not eating a hamburger. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, uh, Dining Alone, my solo show. Top three Joe Ricci moments. He sang to me at our wedding, and I'm not a fan of surprises, but he surprised me and sang at our wedding. The fact that we are married for 10 years, that's a big one. And... Three years ago, I said, honey, I have to move. I hope you come with me. (laughs) (laughs) And he did. (laughs) That is for the second interview. I will be talking to you about that. (laughs) Top three failures. Trusting a woman when I knew I shouldn't. I made a show on her, and she stole my show and called it her own. That was a pretty epic fail. The first time I thought I would launch an online course and get rich, that was an amazing fail, one of my favorites. And I think... Stumped. Yeah. (laughs) I have done it. The the thing about (laughs) failure is that every single day you have an opportunity to learn something. Yeah. Mm. So I think failure for me is like, you just got to get back on the horse, right? Yeah. You no longer see them as failures. I Maybe never, that's what happened. I never did. Yeah. I think that's, that's why I'm stumped, George. We will accept that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Finally, top three accomplishments. Being married for more than 10 years, <laughs> um, producing incredible films, and creating an army of incredible human beings who are taking big stages and sharing their message. Love it. I think that is a great place to wrap. So what we're going to do is I want to close out each of these shows with a moment of inspiration. I haven't really decided yet if this is going to be a different moment of inspiration for each show, if I'm going to be speaking on the same one that's so powerful to me. Trisha and and Dana are here in my office at Launchpad 516, and um, I've created a space here that is is so creative and so inspirational. I, I, I was so proud when I built this office because it was so important to me to inspire people when they walked in here. And one of my favorite pieces that's hanging up is uh, in our event space, 
um, by my conference table is a black and white shot of Jimmy Valvano holding up the, the victory sign, right, with both hands after a Rutgers basketball game. And so, again, just as I mentioned during our episode 101 with Mike Del Judas, I want to reiterate the importance of Jimmy Valvano's Don't Ever Give Up speech at the ESPYs, where he talked about the three things it takes to have a complete day and how important it is to somebody's life. So he said that if you laugh, if you think, if you are moved to thought, and if you cry, that is a full day. You do that seven days a week, that is a hell of a week and a hell of a life. And so I want to leave everybody with the fact that I have been inspired through through this interview. I have been uh, inspired through Trisha's work and, and my work with her to, to grow as a leader and to uh, make sure that I give others that platform to grow as well. And so um, I did laugh, I did think, and I did well up a couple of times in, in, in speaking uh, about a few of my moments with Trisha where I had to look away a little bit, uh, but I'm a crier, so I'm a huge mush. <laughs> Um, and so I thank you for giving me those moments, Trisha. So I want to thank, first of all, our co-host, Dana Lopez. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Love having fun. somebody else in the studio I'm here. inspired as well. I just want to say, Trisha, thank you so much. I really, I'm listening to your words. I, I'm, I'm really kind of given a, a, I'm pumped up by you, you Aww. know, so thank you so much. And I love that your stories of inf- inspiration and mentorship. And I love the fact that you support women. I just think it's pretty amazing. So I read about you, but to sit here and talk to you has been really eye opening and wonderful. So thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you, Dana. Trisha, again, thank you so much for being here. This was this was awesome. I love that you support me anytime I need you. Anytime. And you know I'm there for you. Yep. You know, I'm there for you whenever you need me. Thank so you. thank you again. Keep lifting others up. Guys, thank you for joining us today at the LaunchCast. Follow me at LaunchpadCEO on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at LaunchpadCEO. And check out thelaunchcast.com if you want to see where this podcast is hosted. You can find this everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, the whole deal. And Podbean, of course, where we're hosted. Uh, And also check out... The Leadership EXP, my six-week coaching masterclass. Uh, You've probably seen an ad during this podcast. So go to that website, check it out, sign up. You're not going to want to miss it. Guys, we'll see you later. Launch sequence terminated. Into the black hole. Thanks for listening to the LaunchCast today. Please make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available. Follow me, George Andriopoulos, at LaunchpadCEO on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And make sure to visit our website, guys, thelaunchcast.com. Looking forward to the next episode. See you soon, guys.